Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It's been six weeks since we were last in. Hear the bass going, the background. It's been six weeks, though, since we were last in this book. Can you believe it? It's 2023. I was born 40 years ago. I don't think that has hit me yet. It hasn't sunk in that on a New Year's morning in 1983, my mother, a Guatemalan immigrant, boarded a New York City bus in the middle of a New York City blizzard and made her way over to Harlem Hospital and gave birth to me. My mother says that I was the only red baby in Harlem Hospital, and in the 80s, I imagine that's true. But can you believe it? 40 years ago, where has the time gone? That is my existential dilemma, I think, in 2023, but I think some of us may be experiencing something similar. Christmas has just come and gone, just like that. The magic of Christmas, with all its lights, all of the consumer-driven displays, all of the anticipation, all of the excitement has seemed to sort of dwindled into the past. And now we're back to normal, right? With all our meetings, with school, with appointments. And it feels, or it can feel, as if Christmas never happened. But that return to normalcy is not what Christians were meant to experience. Right? All of our calendars have Christmas at the very end in December, but the church calendar with the four Advents, the four Sunday Advents, and Christmas are at the very beginning. And so the incarnation of Jesus, God's descending into earth, that life-changing event is at the very beginning. And it should define our idea of normal. It should make all of us live a new normal life. But sadly, the tendency of Christians is to sort of live as if Christmas never happened, to live as if we haven't been made new people, to live as if we aren't, as Chris Smith mentioned during this Christmas sermon at Covenant Church, that we aren't Christmas people. It's very easy to fall back into our old ways. And what Paul is going to tell us this morning is that because we have been made new people, we must behave as new people. Because we have been made new people, we must behave as new people. And how do we do that? Well, right there in your bulletins today, I gave you my outline where we're going to be going. And here in our passage, we will be told that we must put off the old self, that we must put on the new self, and then that we must practice this new life. Let me read for us Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17, and to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray now that as we hear your word preached, Lord, that you would remind us of how you have renewed us and that we would be encouraged to live this new life in the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, race walking is an Olympic sport, or I should say it was an Olympic sport. It's recently been removed. Doesn't mean it's not a sport, I should add. But race walking is an event in the Olympics in which athletes, and they are athletes, they walk as fast as they can from the start to the finish. Now, I would have you know that some elite race walkers or speed walkers can walk in uh, a mile in under seven minutes, which is insane. I can't even run that fast. And you might think they're running, but there are rules that govern race walking to prevent them from running. You know, when you run, you kind of, you're, there's a moment where your both feet are off the ground. It's kind of like you're hopping. But in race walking, they make sure, and there are, there are judges that kind of run alongside the race walkers with yellow and red cards and wave them in their faces when they mess, when they mess up. But these rules are one foot must remain on the ground at all times. Not only that, but the forward leg, that lead stride, must remain straight, completely unbent until it goes past your hip, and then you can bend it and bring it forward. And so this, in order to get that speed, of course, you know that race walkers have developed this sort of different way of walking, where their hips sway as they're walking, and they, there's no hop whatsoever. And if, I'm not making fun of you if you partake in this, by the way, it's... It's, you know, it's your prerogative. Um, but if you were ever to compete in a race walk and you think you'd go in there with your everyday stride or like Conor McGregor, you know, swaying your arms rather than your hips, then you would most certainly lose. In order to compete in this sort of race, you'd need to leave your old way of walking behind at the start line and develop a new way of walking. And this is similar to what Paul is telling believers here in our passage, that since they have begun a new life, they must leave the old self behind. He'll tell us plainly in verse 22 that you must put off the old self, but here at the very beginning, in the presence of the Lord, he says, in the name of God, 
they must no longer walk as their old selves, as Gentiles, he mentions there. Now, for those of us who may not know, Gentiles are those who the Bible describes as being not members of the body of God or a believer. If you remember back in the day, like last year, when we were last in Ephesians, Paul was telling believers that Jesus has made us one. Us, we in the church are one body. Despite our ethnic and cultural differences, Jesus has joined us together by his blood. And Gentiles are those who are not a part of that body. Now, Paul is clearly making here something that was then and is now a very controversial statement, a very controversial claim. And it's that believers and unbelievers cannot and do not spiritually coexist as if they are walking in the same way, as if they're walking on the same road, on the way to the same God. As a matter of fact, Paul has made clear throughout his letter that Christians and Gentiles are on two separate paths, walking in opposite directions. He says at the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 4, verse 1, that believers are to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Believers, you're to walk this way. And here he tells believers, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, there are two ways of walking. You know how sometimes when you, when you see someone, maybe you haven't seen for a while, but they're kind of walking towards you, they have that certain gait in their walk or the way they walk, that you're like, oh, I, I know who they are. You can just tell who they are by the way they're walking. And here Paul is saying that this is how you can tell a Gentile apart from a believer. And he, gets, he, go, he goes in. He gets deep with what he says here. He says, they walk in the futility of their minds and with darkened understanding. Now, this doesn't mean that unbelievers or those who aren't Christians are not intelligent. This has nothing to do with intellectual ability or capacity or intellectual prowess. This has to do with purpose. And here Paul is saying that believers are, that unbelievers, I should say, are walking, but they are not quite certain where they're walking to, and they're not quite certain what path they're actually walking on. As Frank Thielman puts it, the picture that Paul paints here is of an existence that is aimless because it is ignorant of all things truth, which is there, there's no knowledge of Jesus. And they are kept in that condition by powerful spiritual forces. In other words, Satan is the one who is blinding them to truth and light. So they're walking away from a life of God. They're pointed in the wrong direction. Paul says here, due to their stubbornness of heart concerning the things of God. And the further they walk, the more callous and hardened they can become and darkened. And in desperation, they will grasp for anything to make them feel like they're living, like they're alive. In verse 19, this is what Paul says, they're reaching out for sensuality. They're reaching out for impurities. In desperation, Theoman writes, they deliver themselves up to the destructive forces of their own unrestrained appetites. A case in point would be the French uh, philosopher Michel Foucault, who, denying and repudiating God, sought to distance himself 
from all things religious. And instead, he grasped onto the sensuality, the absolute freedom that he, that he looked for in the vanity fair of the 1970s, ultimately contracting AIDS in the bars of San, of San Francisco and dying in the early 80s. And Paul here is saying that this was you. This was all of you. Maybe not to an extreme of a Foucault, but the potential is there. Until God himself turned us around and made us a part of the body of Christ. Therefore, you must no longer walk in your old ways as if Christmas never happened. Paul here paints a picture of what you once were so that you would leave it behind. Like a garment is the picture that he's drawing there. Like a, a coat, like a piece of old clothing. Take it off. Leave behind your former way of behaving and acting. I remember going backpacking a couple years ago with some friends and it was a multi-day trip and halfway through the trip it was so hot. Missouri is so humid. Now I'm used to the bare mountain of New York where it's nice and sometimes you'll get a, a little cool breeze that still comes off the coast and makes it that far over. But here it's kind of stagnant and there's mosquitoes and you find, you find yourself kind of clammy almost and your clothes gets all sweaty. And we decided in, in the midst of our backpacking trip to jump into a river and bathe. And so we hop in the river, we get ourselves clean but then, we still had to put on most of our old, dirty clothing. And we couldn't wait to get home, although we enjoyed the backpacking trip. There was just this something in our minds that just couldn't wait to get home and put on a fresh pair of clothes. Right? A fresh pair of, or just new clothing would have been nice at that time. And this is what Paul is saying here. Knowing who you were, you shouldn't be comfortable in your old clothes. You should want new clothing. You must, as a matter of fact, he says, and this is our second point, you must put on the new self, like a new garment, with a new way of walking, a new way of behaving and living. Because that old way of walking, verse 20, he says, it's not how you learned Christ. Notice that he doesn't say, it's not how you learned about Christ, as if Jesus were a subject among many, like you learn about math or English or science or electricity or plumbing or dance or music. No, he's saying, this is not how you learned Christ. See, normally with a subject, a student kind of stands on the outside, right? And he, he looks in upon the subject and he analyzes, he scrutinizes, he critiques. He's looking in. But instead, learned Christ is more of you're standing on the inside, looking out. See, learned Christ implies a relationship because Jesus is not a subject. He's a person. This is like me saying, as Pablo, or as a husband, I learn Mary. There's, 
there's communication, there's interaction, and the learning happens within the sphere of relationship. No longer are you on the outside looking in, rather you are on the inside of the sphere of relationship looking out. And this is why Paul writes there that you heard about him and were taught in him. You were within the sphere. In other words, believers are drawn into a sphere of relationship with Jesus where Jesus himself is the teacher about all things life, where he is the one who teaches us how to live. And as you, as you cross that plane into the new sphere, the old man is left behind and a new person reemerges. No longer is the mind futile or, or darkened, but verse 23, you are renewed and given a new self that is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This reminds me of a beautiful children's book called The Priest in the Dirty Clothes. It's written by R.C. Sproul, so you know it's, it's going to be good. And he's, he has this way of teaching biblical truths to even a child. And in that story, he, he writes about a, a priest who is, he has to go preach his first sermon before the king. And he's been given a call, which is like the, the monks. It takes place in, in like medieval um, culture. He's given a call. He's wearing that brown, scratchy wool sort of dress, and he's walking on his way to the kingdom, to the castle, to preach to the king, and it's raining, it's thundering, and as he's making his way there, he slips off the side of the road, and he falls down into an embankment, and he's completely covered in head to toe with mud, and he's, he's out of time. He has to make it to preach a sermon, so he gets up there as fast as he can, and he enters into the king's beautiful, clean, perfect chamber completely muddied, and immediately there's an accuser who points out, you cannot come in here and preach before the king in those filthy, dirty clothes. And the king says, you're right. He's right. You cannot stand before me in those dirty clothes. And immediately the priest sort of panics and he runs off and he goes to the bishop and he says, hey, can I get a new pair of clothes? And the bishop says, I'm sorry, but you only get one pair. You only get one set of clothing. And so he's, he's desperate. He runs over, he runs to the laundromat, right? And he, he tries to get them to scrub with all their traditions and mystical arts to get all of the mud out. But the, the suds, I mean, the, the stains remain in his call, in his clothing. But he has to preach a sermon, and so he makes his way back up to the castle, and he stands before the king one more time, and then again the accuser is saying, you cannot stand before the king in those filthy, dirty clothes. And he says, I know. That's all I got. And immediately the prince, who's seated next to the king, he gets up off his throne and he comes down to where the priest is, Christmas, right? And he comes to the priest and he says, here, take my clothes. Give me yours. And the priest says, I, I can't take your clothes. And he says, no, 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 no. These are for you. 
And the priest, uh, of course, preaches the best sermon of his life. I mean, grace right there is probably the theme of his sermon. And what this story, I think, beautifully illustrates is that the only, pe- the only way that anyone, any person, can stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God is to be completely righteous, meaning you've never done anything wrong. And being completely holy, meaning you've been completely washed clean. And by nature, none of us are like that. We are born spiritually Gentiles, but that is exactly why Jesus gave us his own clothing, so that when the judge of all the earth looks at us, he sees his holy and perfect son made new people, created for a new world. He has made us in the likeness and image of God in true righteousness and holiness. And if this is you, if you are a new person, now Paul is going to tell you that you must behave like it. In other words, you must exercise and practice not what you preach. Don't practice what you preach. You must practice who you are. You are a new person created in the image and likeness of Christ himself. These are new behaviors and new ethics that we must practice. The behaviors and the ethics and the morals of the old person, they have no place in the new world. They have no place in that sphere of relationship with Jesus, so we must put off that old way of living that was part of the old person and put on new living, with new behaviors, with new morals, with new ethics that reflect the new people that you have been renewed to be. And this brings us to our last point here. We must practice that new person. Now, one of the things I've been trying to teach uh, young athletes as I coach in particular, maybe those under my own roof, is the necessity and the importance of practice. And it isn't about simply showing up to practice, but putting in the hard work at practice, going all out in practice, as if you are playing the biggest game of your life in practice, so that you develop the skills that in an actual game will seem effortless. The stamina, the endurance, the the heart rate, the oxygen intake, those fast twitch muscles are by nature limited. They're at a certain threshold. But in practice, you begin to push against that threshold. And not once, because then that that limit sort of comes right back down, right? But you push on it over and you push on it over, and you push on it over again so that it becomes a new threshold. In a sense, it becomes a new normal. And you leave those unathletic parts of yourself behind. And what Paul is giving us here is that practical practice plan. Going with the P's today, if you haven't noticed. Practical practice plan. I think Chris went with the peas last week too, right? Man, it's a, a, a new year of peas. If you recall, though, 
Paul's concern was with the unity of the members of the body. And that's what he's been going back to throughout his letter. And here he gives believers five ways of living, five new behaviors that are to strengthen the joints of that new body so that they're together able to compete in this game of life. And it's, I don't mean that in a trivial sense at all because the stakes are high, of course. It's life and death. But here he tells us, beginning in verse 25, one of these new behaviors, he says first, speak truth with your neighbor, for, me, for we are members one of another. So new people are people who are known for their honesty. Believers are those who are known as truth speakers. They are to be trusted. And it's not because we're told in Scripture that we are to love our neighbor. Of course, that is true. It's not just because of that. But rather, what Paul says here is that members of the body are even closer than neighbors. He says we are members one of another. John Stott writes that fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. Falsehood undermines fellowship while truth strengthens it. So truthhood is a skill to be mastered. It's something that must be mastered by new people because you are people of the truth. Therefore, master and practice speaking truth to one another, speaking the gospel constantly to each other. In verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, it may surprise some of us that the Bible permits anger or even in some cases commands anger, but we, we must distinguish between unrighteous anger and what I would call normal anger. See, normal anger is the type of anger that we typically use. It's the anger that lashes out at our kids or at our spouse or at yourself even. It's the anger of the old person though. It's an anger that is selfish and lashes out. It is uncontrolled. However, the new person is to be angry in the way that God is angry. And the Bible describes God as being angry with everything that is wrong in this world every day. He is, wrong with, he is angry with unrighteousness. He is angry with unholiness. He is angry with sin. He's angry with the injustices in this world that plague and harm those people made in his image. John, Stite, John Stott, I should say, he, he further writes on this section that there is a great need in our contemporary world for Christian anger. We human beings often compromise with sin in a way which God never does, and in the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant and not tolerant. We should be angry and not apathetic. Now, I would caveat this by saying that we must exercise wisdom in what we're angry about. Not everything that we think is worth our anger is a righteous cause. If ever we were to discover any resentment or selfishness or any inkling hint of sin behind our anger, we need to let it go immediately. This is what it means to not let the sun go down on your anger. If there's ever a hint of unrighteous anger, you need to let it go ASAP, as soon as possible. 
In verse 28, we read the message to thieves, which is pretty straightforward. I remember um, as, a, as a young man, we used to have a, a cable box in our house. I don't know if it was the same here in, in Missouri, but um, we had a cable box in which you can press a button on the back and get access to all the channels. It, we would call it a bootleg box. It was an illegal box is what it was. But so long as I got to watch any channel that I wanted, I didn't think twice about it, right? No, no one really cared, but it was stealing, ultimately, is what that was. We often compromise on, on the smallest things, but any, anything that you take that is not yours, that you have not earned, is stealing. And Paul is saying, don't compromise even on the smallest of things. He tells the, the thief here that you are a new person. What you need to practice with your hands is not taking stuff from others, but rather with honest, hard work, working diligently so that you can give to others. See, the new normal is an inverse of the world. It's, it's sort of God's upside down, as it's been said before. Your old ways tore down, but in your new life, you are to build up. And along those lines, in, in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. So along with speaking truth, the new person's speech is to be seasoned with life-giving words. Interestingly here, the word used uh, for corrupt is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 7, 17 to refer to a diseased tree that, of course, bears bad fruit or rotten fruit. Of course, no one would want to sit under a rotten tree that, that gives rotten apples. And likewise, no one would want to sit at the feet of someone whose words are diseased, who constantly, whose words constantly produce dissension and division. And I think this is why Paul, immediately after this, mentions do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Not only does this show that the Holy Spirit is a person that can be grieved, but that he is the epitome of oneness. He is the one spirit that longs for unity. And nothing causes more division amongst the members of the body than the Tower of Diseased Babel. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, from out of the abundance of the heart speaks the mouth. If for any reason we are speaking recklessly, what our words are doing is testifying against the work of the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption. In Proverbs 12, 18, we read, there is one whose words are rash like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing, and that is who new people are. They are healers, not corruptors of unity. And we should be asking ourselves at this point, are we measuring up? There's a lot there. Have we reached our full potential? Right? Have we pushed against that threshold? Are we our new normal with a new way of walking? That's Paul's point here. And he has one more. Lastly, in verse 31, Paul then reiterates all of the old behaviors that we should leave behind, and in contrast, that we must be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
and forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. This is the way. Mandalorian fans, this is the way. This is the way of new living for new people. It's a life of kindness, of tenderheartedness, of forgiving one another. Notice lastly here that Paul writes forgiving, not as in just a one-time thing, right? but ongoing and continuous. Because new people still make old mistakes. It's like when we write 2022 on a check, but we're in 2023. It's not as trivial as that, of course. But we're so used to sometimes, we're, we're so used sometimes to the old way of life that it sometimes just creeps up in our new lives. We've all heard the saying, practice makes perfect. But I say to you, that's not true. Practice does not make perfect. But practice does mean that you will make mistakes less often. And so if you are new people, you must practice these practical, biblical principles. More peace for you guys there. And the reason for doing that is so that you begin to develop these new habits, new skills, new behaviors, right? The new ethics, the new morals of the new life which reflect the new people that you are. Brothers and sisters, you have been forgiven. You have been made Christmas people. And so live that out, the way Paul has described here. And the way you do that is by putting off the old self, by putting on the new self, and by practicing who you are. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you moved heaven and earth, O oh Lord, to make us new people, to draw us into the sphere of relationship with you, a sphere that we did not deserve because we were by nature children of wrath. But Lord, you did this all to call us children. And I pray, Lord, that we would, from here on out, practice the people, not that, not that we um, are... are trying to be, but the people who we are. Help us to do this through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in your name. Amen.